Welcome to Footsteps of the Fallen, a Great War podcast with me, battlefield researcher, historian and writer, Matt Dixon. I spent over 30 years visiting the battlefields, cemeteries and memorials of the First World War. And in this series of podcasts, I'd like to take you on a journey through France, Belgium and further afield and share with you the stories and history of the places I visited and the personal stories of some of the dead of the Great War. So grab a cuppa, pull up a chair and join me as we walk the battlefields, treading in the footsteps of the fallen. So in this first episode, we've come to my spiritual home and one of my favourite places to visit on the battlefields, and that's the small Belgian town of Ypres. So I'm currently standing outside a small cemetery. The cemetery is called Oxford Road. It's about two miles to the east of Ypres. And Oxford Road itself was a small track that ran directly behind and parallel to the British support lines. Now the British trenches themselves were about four to five hundred metres away from where I'm standing. And Oxford Road itself still exists today, but it's now a modern tarmac metalled road as opposed to the track that it was but if you look at uh, contemporary trench maps you'll see that there were British support trenches that ran down into the lane itself so this area would have been a hive of activity at all times during the Great War. Now the cemetery itself has got a rather unusual design I quite like it if you look at it from above be it on a Google Earth or, or Google Maps and it's shaped in a sort of T um, and from above, to me, it all strikes me, it looks rather like the shape of an angel, like angel's wings with the angel's body. The cemetery itself was begun in August 1917, and it was used until approximately April 1918. In October 1917, another cemetery was created nearby, and that now forms plot five of what's the current cemetery. And after the war, the Graves Registration Unit and the Imperial War Graves Commission, as it was then known, had the unenviable task of clearing the battlefield of dead, collecting bodies from the battlefield and amalgamating many of the small battlefield cemeteries that had sprung up during the fighting and concentrating them into permanent cemeteries. And that's effectively what Oxford Road is. It's a concentration cemetery from the battlefield cemeteries with a mix of the original graves now, by Belgian standards, it's quite a small cemetery. It's only got 851 headstones in it, and of them, 297 are identified. It's quite a reflective of the fighting around here. They are, they are dead from Britain, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And one of the things you notice about this cemetery, like all cemetery visits, it's immaculately kept by the Commonwealth War Graves. There are rows and rows of white Portland stone headstones they're all beautifully symmetric laid out in perfect straight rows and one of the things that strikes you always when you visit these cemeteries is that there is no distinction in headstones between rank race religion regiment so it's not unusual find senior officers buried next door to privates and a whole mix of regiments it's one of the underpinning philosophies of the Commonwealth war graves but in death, everybody is equal. So just on my right, as I come through, the entrance to the cemetery is a row of graves. There are six men. They all died on the same day, the 22nd of July, 1917. 
they were all members of the Royal Field Artillery, and it's a single gun crew. And I think it's nice that they were comrades in life. They were obviously all killed at the same time on the same day. One would assume in the same instant. And just as they were comrades in life, so they now lie together as comrades in death. The artillery itself was a, a very dangerous profession to be in. Not only were you targeted by German artillery, you were at the risks of air raids on your gun positions. There were frequently casualties caused by faulty ammunition. And uh, I remember doing some research a couple of years ago onto a, into rather a second lieutenant of the Royal Garrison Artillery, and he was commanding a heavy siege battery, very big calibre guns, long way behind the front lines, and his battery was in action one afternoon when a shell exploded inside the breech of one of their guns. The destruction this caused was enormous, and there's a letter in the second lieutenant's file that was written by the regimental padre, and he says, the padre says, after... The explosion took place of the eight men who were manning the gun he collected all the body parts that he could and all that remained was enough to fill a single sandbag so i'm standing in front of a headstone and on the headstone is the unmistakable emblem of the maltese cross with the words for valor underneath it the emblem of the victoria cross and the name of the man on the headstone is Clement Robinson. And he was a member of the Tank Corps. He served in the tanks and he won his Victoria Cross in 1917. About uh, three miles from where we're standing now, near Polygon Wood. And he holds the unique distinction of being the first member of the Tank Corps to be awarded the Victoria Cross during the Great War. So the Tank Corps themselves won four Victoria Crosses throughout the Great War. Robinson was the first member of the Tank Corps to win his. And what's particularly interesting about the Victoria Crosses that they won was that all four men were killed in the act of performing the deed that won the Victoria Cross. And none of them, none of the four, was actually in a tank at the time when they won the medal. Robinson won his VC on the morning of the 4th of October 1917 and the action that he performed was described as one of the most patently courageous acts of gallantry of the entire war. Now Robinson himself was the son of an army officer. He was born at Peter Maritzburg in South Africa on the 15th of December 1890. Uh, he grew up in Delgarney in County Wicklow. His family hailed from there. And he went to university in Dublin, where he Trinity College, where he studied engineering. And when he graduated, he went to live out in Egypt and worked as a civil engineer on the irrigation project for the River Nile. He joined the army as soon as war broke out in 1914. Uh, he joined the second public schools battalion of the Royal Fusiliers and was subsequently commissioned as an officer into the Royal West Surrey Regiment. Around about January 1917, he joined the Tank Corps and he went into action for the first time on the 7th of June 1917, again in Belgium near Messines. And it was something of a baptism of fire for him. His tank 
was hit by a German shell. Uh, one of his crew was killed and two of his men were seriously wounded. Robinson managed to survive this, but uh, clearly quite a baptism of fire for him in his first experience of combat in a tank. Now, on the morning of the 4th of October 1917, an attack was planned, which was due to take place through Polygon Wood, attacking towards the small village of Reutel. Now, the problem that the tanks faced on this particular morning was that they were going to have to cross something called the Reutelbeeker. Now, this was a small irrigation stream. Whilst it might be small, it represented a significant obstacle to a tank. The conditions on the battlefield around Ypres at this particular time were absolutely terrible. The months of shell fire had destroyed what was an already fragile drainage system, causing fields to flood, shell holes to be filled with water, a problem exacerbated by inclement weather and extremely heavy rain. Now, Robinson recognised that the conditions were heavily against the tanks and he realised that something needed to be done. So from the night of the 30th September, him and his orderly, uh, a man called Private Cyril Allen, spent most of their time out in no man's land where they laid cotton tapes, white cotton tapes on the ground as a visual aid for the tanks to follow. Now this task was monumental. It took them three days to complete. And what's remarkable about this is that whilst they were out laying the ribbons and tapes on the ground, they were being shelled constantly, being subjected to heavy enemy fire, but they stuck at their task because they knew it needed to be done. And late on the night of the 3rd of October, they finally finished. And instead of taking some rest, Robinson went back and he led his tanks one by one out into no man's land, walking in front of them so the drivers could see him. So they were formed up in the right place to launch their attack in the morning. This task was finished by around about four o'clock in the morning. He managed to get an hour's sleep before the attack was due to start at 6am. Now, instead of being in the tank, he realised that somebody needed to take control of the situation. So he walked in front of the tanks one by one to guide them as they crossed the Reutelbeeker. Now, the Germans knew this attack was happening. They could see what was going on. And all the time that Robinson was in front of his tanks, he was being once again subjected to heavy shell fire, shrapnel, grenades, machine gun, rifle fire. He remained outside guiding his tanks because he knew that the only way that the operation was going to be successful was if he personally guided the tanks over. They managed successfully to cross the Reutel Beaker and they used a narrow bridge and he guided each one individually until the inevitable happened when he was finally hit by fire and was shot and killed. The tanks, however, fought on. They fought their way through Polygon Wood and successfully cleared the Germans and made their way to Reutel. As a result of his heroism, Robinson was awarded the Victoria Cross and his citation reads as follows. For most conspicuous bravery in leading his tanks under heavy shell, machine gun and rifle fire, Captain Robinson, knowing the risks of the tanks missing the way, led them on foot, guiding them carefully and patiently towards their objective, although he must have known 
that his action would almost inevitably cost him his life. This gallant officer was killed once his objective had been reached, but his skilful leadership had already ensured successful action. His utter disregard of danger and devotion to duty afforded an example of outstanding valour. Whenever I'm guiding people around the battlefields, I always make a point of coming to Oxford Road Cemetery because there's one grave in particular that I think is especially interesting. And when you go around the cemeteries, it's not unusual to come across small mementos in front of individual headstones. Normally it's a small wooden cross, maybe a poppy, perhaps a photograph. But the grave I'm standing in front of at the moment has a large pile of cricket balls lying on the ground in front of it. Now perhaps that's not what one would expect to see in a war cemetery, but these cricket balls are at the foot of the headstone of a man called Colin Blythe. And until Shane Warne came along, Colin Blythe was arguably the greatest spin bowler to ever play the game of cricket. He played for Kent and England. His story is fascinating. And his headstone remains a place of pilgrimage for cricket fans. Indeed, the England cricket team came and visited his headstone in 2009 and again in 2013 before the Ashes series. And they all remarked that it was a truly moving experience. Now, Colin Blythe was born on the 30th of May, 1879, and he was killed in action on the 8th of November, 1917. He was a first-class cricketer for Kent between 1899 and 1914, and he played 19 test matches for England between 1901 and 1910. In 1904, he was voted Wisden's Player of the Year, and... He is, to this date, one of only 33 players to have taken more than 2,000 wickets in his career. And he still holds the world record for taking the most wickets in a single day's play in first-class cricket, where he took 17 wickets in a single day. Now, he was born in Deptford. He was the eldest of 13 children to Walter and Elizabeth Blythe. Uh, Walter was an engineer by trade. He worked at the Royal Arsenal at Woolwich in manufacturing of shells and artillery. And Blythe followed his father into this profession when he left school. Now, while there's been much written about Colin Blythe, one of the things that's never been formally agreed on is how he gained his introduction to the cricketing environment. It's believed that he played some recreational cricket whilst he was working at Woolwich, but the generally accepted version of events about how he really broke onto the scene relates to an incident that happened on the 17th of July, 1897. It was a rare day at the Arsenal because the workers had been given a half day, uh, some time off. And Colin decided that he would go and watch the final day, the final afternoon of the county match between Kent and Somerset. So he duly went to the ground. There was a very small crowd in at that time. And the Kent and England all-rounder, Walter White, was due to be next into bat 
for Kent when Colin arrived at the ground and he was in the nets, the practice nets that behind the ground. He was asking the assembled people who were watching if somebody would be prepared to throw a few balls down to him so he could get his eye in and, and practice hitting. The story goes that he threw the ball to Colin Blythe and bearing in mind that this is a man who was an established first-class player, one would have expected that this would be very easy for him. The story goes that Blythe turned his cap round, loosened his tie, ran into bowl, and to all intents and purposes took White to the cleaners. He dismantled him. This was an amateur bowling to a first-class player, and he tied White up, caused him all sorts of trouble. And he so impressed the Kent manager, William McCandless, who happened to be watching the Nets at the time, that he approached Blythe and offered him a trial for Kent on the spot. So Colin spent two years playing in the development side at Kent before, in the summer of 1900, he was handed his first-class debut playing for Kent in a county match against Yorkshire. And it was quite a match to be given his debut in Kent found themselves in all sorts of trouble. The Yorkshire captain was batting them out of the game. And when it all looked lost, the Kent captain threw Blythe the ball and asked him to take his first over in first-class cricket. And Blythe joined that distinguished and very elite club of bowlers who have taken a wicket with the first ball they bowled in first-class matches. Blythe came into bowl, he pitched almost a metre outside the Yorkshire captain's off stump. The ball spun over a metre and took his leg stump out of the ground. It was one of the most remarkable deliveries ever seen and it was recorded in the Times and the National Press as one of the most extraordinary things that had ever been seen in a first-class cricket match. Blythe's cricketing exports could fill up an entire podcast on their own, but I know that not everyone is a cricket fan. I'm not going to dwell too much on this, but I think it is worth looking at his statistics to give some idea, really, of how remarkable he was. For nine seasons running, he took over 100 wickets. He was the Wisdom's Cricketer of the Year in 1904. In 1907, he broke a record which still stands to this day as the bowler who took the most wickets in a single day's play where he took 17 wickets for 48 runs against Northamptonshire. In 1910, he took two hat-tricks in a fortnight and he finally retired from first-class cricket in 1914 having taken 50 more wickets per season than his nearest rival, a miraculous seven times something that's never been repeated since. And he also remains one of only 33 players that have taken more than 2,000 wickets during their first-class career. One of the problems that blighted Colin throughout his career was that he suffered severely from epilepsy. And despite this, he volunteered to join the army in 1914 at the outbreak of war. He served... In the Royal Engineers, a number one reserve company of the Kent Fortress Royal Engineers, 
and his service was predominantly in the UK, he had agreed that at the conclusion of the war he would take a position as the cricket coach at Eton College and he committed to working with Kent as a coach. But the fortune of war dictated that by 1917 the army had started to post Royal Engineers into combat units and this was largely due to replace the heavy losses that had been suffered by the army in 1916 at the Battle of the Somme. In August 1917, Colin Blythe was in Belgium and he was posted to the 12th Pioneer Battalion of the King's own Yorkshire Light Infantry. And this was a battalion that was made up predominantly of Yorkshire miners. There was a huge amount of tunnelling took place around Ypres and the miners from areas such as Yorkshire, Derbyshire, Nottinghamshire found the soil and the geology around Ypres was very conducive to their mining skills. So the 12th Battalion was predominantly made up of Yorkshire miners and on the 8th of November 1917 Colin Blythe was near the small village of Passchendaele and he was working at repairing a light railway that ran behind the British lines and was used to supply ammunition, food, medicine to the front line and whilst he was doing his repairs he was hit in the chest by a piece of shrapnel and thankfully for him but sadly for English cricket the shrapnel was fatal and he was killed instantly. And to give you some impression of how seriously and how badly this was felt, his obituary in Wisden described his death as the worst thing to happen to cricket during the war and the single greatest loss to the game of cricket since the death of W.G. Grace. As a cricket fan myself, I always find it very moving visiting Colin Blythe's grave. I'm reading the simple but heartfelt epitaph from his wife that simply says, in loving memory of my husband, the Kent, an England cricketer. Now, just up the road from Oxford Road Cemetery is a very impressive memorial. It's about 200 metres further up the road you've just come from, and it is a large white obelisk. It commemorates the 50th Division, that's the Northumbrian Division, and it's a memorial to all of their dead, not just from the First World War, but also from the Second World War, where they also fought in this area. Now, the 50th Division was one of 14 territorial divisions. They were formed in 1908, when the then Minister for War, Richard Haldane, ordered a reform of the army. Now, when war broke out in 1914, the division was just about to go off on its annual summer camp, and it was put on a state of readiness and it duly returned up to the northeast and took up its defensive positions on the banks of the River Tyne. Now by April 1915, the casualties suffered by the Allies were immense and the division was put on emergency warning for a short, very quick turnaround to be dispatched to Europe. Uh, this duly arrived on the 16th of April and by the 23rd of April, 
the division found itself near Steenvoorde, a town just to the southeast of Ypres. And they arrived at an absolutely critical time during the fighting, because the day before, the 22nd of April 1915, the Germans had used a new weapon of war for the first time, poison gas. And that's something that we will look at in much more detail in a later podcast in this series. The Germans achieved a huge gap in the British line through the use of gas, and thankfully for the Allies, the Germans didn't exploit this opportunity as well they should have done, and it gave the Allies time to block the line. And the 50th Division normally would have had time to acclimatise to the region and learn the basics of trench warfare. But unfortunately, they didn't have that luxury. They didn't get that time to adapt to the battlefield. And they were simply thrown into action in a desperate defensive battle against the Germans to try and plug the hole around Ypres. It's a very impressive memorial. I think it's a great testament to the men of the North East, not just in the First World War, but also those who died in the Second World War as well. So we come to the end of our first journey through the footsteps of the fallen. Thank you very much for joining me. I've enjoyed talking to you about Oxford Road Cemetery, and I hope you'll join me again on our next episode where we head down into France and we'll be going to Artois and the small village of Neuve-Chapelle, where I'll be talking to you about the fighting that took place there in 1915. Thank you for being with me, and I look forward to seeing you next time that we walk in the footsteps of the fallen.